Um, and guys, thanks for the opportunity to come to your group. I can tell right off the bat that this is a group of people who are serious about AA and, and you're my people. I, um, I love this fellowship and I, and I love this program and, and, um, and it's an honor to come talk with you guys. Um, having said that though, there is a part of me that always wants to raise my hand when you ask for like, is this, is there anyone new to AA? And like, when I'm the speaker, I want to go, Oh, hi, I am. This is my first meeting, you know, just see what kind of reaction I get. I haven't done it yet, but one of these days. Um, anyway, my name's Chad Payne. I'm alcoholic. I've been sober since April the 2nd of uh, 2003. That's that's 18 years, and that's a big deal, you know, for, for a guy like me. And I'm very grateful for these 18 years. And I can tell you that uh, they've been amazing, and they've also been difficult. Spiritual growth has been, uh, uh, oh, it's it's been indescribable, you know, and my experience is that it can be very messy at times. And there are some things that I can uh, hold on to and struggle with for a long time. And, and there's some freedoms that I've realized in these 18 years that go way beyond sobriety and uh, into places that I never could have dreamed of. And so, uh, so I'm real grateful for it on. Um, oh, uh, before I get started, I do want to talk a little bit about my home group. Travis mentioned it's a primary purpose group. Um, we meet in, in Austin, in, uh, in the Austin New Church on Tuesday nights um, in person. And on Wednesday nights, we meet on Zoom. And that's the one I'm a part of. I'm not living in Austin right now, but, um, uh, you know, I may be back. I don't know what's going to happen right now. But I am involved in the, the uh, Wednesday night online meeting. We're a big book study, and we study the book very slowly, line by line. And we keep our discussion, it's a little different. We keep our discussion focused on what the text is saying and try to keep our experience out of it as much as possible, which was really weird for me. When I first showed up back in 2009, I was convinced that they were doing it wrong and I wasn't coming back until I heard some people talking about the instructions in the big book. And I realized that there were some things I wasn't doing that I somehow hadn't noticed. And it hit me right in the pride. You know what I mean? Like, like I was thinking, wow, the book says to do this and I'm not doing it, you know? So I had to come back. And as I came back a few times, I, uh, I fell in love with the group. And, and it's one of those groups uh, uh, where it's a group of people who, who really don't have much of a choice but to take this thing really uh, seriously. And we're all about, about following the instructions in the big book as best we can and carrying this message. And uh, it's really cool to see people after the meeting to see, you know, someone, one of our members sitting with somebody new, taking them through the steps after the meeting. And then a few weeks later to see that new guy sitting with someone new, taking them through the steps. And we just love to see this thing keep going. And, uh, you know, this my sponsor calls it this ripple effect of, of one alcoholic helping another. So it's a great thing to get to be a part of. And um uh, I will try to get my email address or something in the chat later on. If you want to find out the information on it, uh, you can reach out to me or Travis has my contact information. You can always get it from him. Okay, so let's do an AA talk. On, uh, on page 29 in the big book, it says each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. Um, that's my job here tonight. My job is to talk to you guys about how um, I came to have how uh, how like an agnostic, self-centered, stubborn, hopeless alcoholic like me 
came to have um, an amazing relationship with my creator. And, uh, and, you know, this relationship started long before I thought it did. Um, uh, I, it, it didn't start like when I showed up in AA or when I took the third step or, or when I finished the 12, finished, you know, the 12 step it, it, or had this spiritual awakening. I realized now that that relationship with God started way, way back. There were a lot of things that happened in my life that drove me to seek a relationship with God. And, and a lot of what I want to begin talking about is kind of like what paved the way to surrender. Because what I understand today is this program is all about surrender. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but there are some bookmarks that you see going around the recovery community. And, and like they'll say like a principle beside each step, as if this step signifies this principle. Like it might say, um, uh, step one, honesty, step two, hope or whatever, you know, and, and I, I don't like them personally. I think it's kind of an oversimplification, but, but, uh, I heard someone say one time, if she could redesign those bookmarks, it would say step one, surrender, step two, surrender. Step three, surrender. And, and I can really get down with that because to me, everything we do, this is a really, uh, to live spiritually is really simple. But I'm not. I'm really complicated. And I have to do some work to get to a place of uh, a surrender. So, so, you know, the way that I see this today is, is step one. I surrender that I'm alcoholic. Step two, I surrender my old ideas and prejudice around spiritual matters. And step three, I surrender to the failure of self-will and move on with the rest of the steps to continue to deepen that surrender to the failure of self-will. You know, and that's what opens me up to the world of the spirit. So what paved the way to surrender? Well, as a kid... I mean, I was doing pretty good. I come from a um, uh, a loving family, but a dysfunctional family. Like, like, let me put it this way. Like, if you ask me how many brothers and sisters I have, well, that's not really a simple answer. I mean, like, I don't know if this one, like one time I was telling a story um, about how my sister's brother died in a car wreck when he was 14. And, and someone said, isn't your sister's brother, your brother? And I was like, well, he's like my stepsister's half brother. You know, it's that kind of thing. And, and of the six of us in my family that I grew up with and spent most of my time growing up with, um, five of us, either currently are or at some time in the past have been members of 12-step fellowships. So that's really cool to sit around Thanksgiving and talk about talk recovery, you know, but it wasn't cool getting to that point. You know, it took a lot of, a, a lot of suffering to get us all to a place where we became like, you know, I didn't, I didn't like have this lifelong goal to be a member of a 12-step program. I mean, no offense to anybody, but, but that, that wasn't part of the plan. Um, you know, but I'm glad it worked out that way. But I was doing pretty good as a kid and, and got along well with friends and played sports and did well in school and, and uh, got along well with adults and teachers. Everything was pretty good up until 
um, about seventh grade. And that's when I started to develop this, um, what, what the big book I think calls like a spiritual malady. Like I found myself um, experiencing a lot of anxiety or feelings of inadequacy. There was always like this low level fear in me, this um, inability to be okay with who I am. Um, and it caused me to be really judgmental of other people and to separate myself and, and, and to feel like I wasn't a part of and I wanted to be a part of, but at the same time, I felt like I was better than you but also worse than you, you know? So it was really a, this, like this, this conscious separation and these feelings of not being enough. And that stuff wasn't true. I was a part of, and I, I, I did well, and you know, but, but I, I just didn't see it that way. And it got worse. Seventh grade was rough. Eighth grade was really tough. Ninth grade, you know, it was getting worse. And then the miracle occurred. You know, and most of you already know what I'm going to say. The miracle of the first dream happened. And um, I immediately fell in love uh, with drinking. It did so much for me in the beginning. It removed all that stuff I just described like that. I no longer felt like I wasn't enough. I was clearly enough. And I fit in with all of you. As a matter of fact, you were fortunate to get to be around me. Um, I was, uh, I, alcohol was, was a, drinking was a lot like a spiritual experience. It, it's like it took me out of my head. I was no longer regretting the past. I was no longer worried about the future. I could focus on this moment experience you experience this world as it is the world went from like gray black and white to to in color and it was so free my dad told me when i was about 18 years old um i was a senior in high school and he told me i think i was about to graduate and he said son it's time for you to uh to quit drinking this has gone on for too long and it's 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 out of hand and you need to put down the drinking and um and and go on and, and grow up and be a man and i remember thinking at that time like dude if you had any idea what you were asking of me you wouldn't ask it because you don't understand what this has done for me the life that i have today is a life beyond my wildest dreams and it's because i started drinking and partying. And that was very clear to me. Okay. So here's the interesting thing. You're going to hear, and those of you who have been in AA for a while, and those of you who have done any speaking, you may have told a very similar story. And so many people in AA tell this same story that I didn't like the way that I felt. And then I drank and then I felt better. That's so common. But that's not what makes me alcoholic. As a matter of fact, that's a really common experience for teenagers all over the world. I know I've been a high school teacher for like 15 years. There are a lot of teenagers 
that don't like the way they feel and they smoke a joint or drink some alcohol or take a pill or whatever, you know, teenagers do now and they feel much better. Are they all alcoholic? Well, well no. So if that's not what makes me alcoholic, well, then what is? And that's a really important piece of information. I didn't know how important it was. But I can tell you this, when I showed up in AA, I wasn't really doing the work. And the reason I wasn't really doing the work is because I didn't think I had to, because I didn't really understand what was wrong with me. I knew something was wrong with me. You know, and 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 when other people identified as alcoholic in meetings, it's like, man, I've I've done some serious drinking. You know, you guys are alcoholic. I'm clearly alcoholic. But if you would have said, okay, Chad, you're alcoholic, cool. What exactly does that mean? What separates you from other people who drink? And I could have told you some of my experience and some of the things that I did, but I couldn't have given you a real clear answer on what it means to be alcoholic until someone really explained it to me. And the book, you know, it's funny. I was just having this really weird discussion. I've had it some with uh, my sponsor and some uh, now with a couple other guys. And, you know, whenever it's like at the beginning of this meeting, in most meetings, you said, read only the 12 steps. And of course you read what's on page 59 in the big book. You know, these are the 12 steps as they're listed on the wall. But sometimes I wonder, like, like other programs, other fellowships have adopted our 12 steps and they take the, what, the, the steps that are numbered, that are hanging on the wall in the meeting, that are written down on page 59. But sometimes I wonder, like if Bill came back, if, if he might say, you know, that's not really the 12 steps. That's one description of them. But check this out. On page 30, it tells me the first step in recovery. And if someone were to say to me, Chad, what's the first step in recovery? I wouldn't say we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives would become unmanageable. This is what I would say. I would say that the first step is that I have to fully concede to my innermost self that I'm alcoholic. Uh, the next line is, this is the first step in recovery. And the reason I know you may say, well, that's just, you know, it's saying the same thing. And basically it is. It is basically saying the same thing. But I think that this to me is, is a little better description because what I need to do when I, the first thing that I need to do when I walk in this program is identify with somebody. Get an understanding of what it means to be alcoholic. And then concede or surrender to my innermost self that I have this thing. And that's a big step. And it didn't happen for me until I had been around AA for a little while um, and someone helped me to understand it. So here's the thing. To fully concede means to surrender. How do you know if I'm surrendered? Don't ask me. Watch me. I mean, how many times have you guys worked with, with someone new and said, okay, are you willing to go to any link? You're, are you alcoholic? Yes, I'm alcoholic. You willing to go to any? Yes, I am. And then two weeks later, they're not doing anything. And then a month later, they're normal people now. And then you don't see them. Any and it's not that they were lying to you. It's just if you want to know if I've really surrendered, you have to watch what actions I take, not the words that are coming out of my mouth. So 
Then it goes on to say, what do I have to fully concede to? Well, to my innermost self that what is it that I have to concede that I'm alcoholic? And in order for me to concede that I'm alcoholic, I need to know what it means. And to me, the most important thing that I need to know is the difference in a drunk and an alcoholic. Because I think most of us, when we come in, we assume that, yes, because I know I'm a drunk, I've admitted that I'm alcoholic, but there's a big difference. And the big difference is the hopelessness. See, what it means to be alcoholic, a guy like me, the book, Dr. Silkworth calls it a physical allergy. I call it an alcohol problem. I think sometimes as a big book thumper, you know, or, or big book people, sometimes we, we're guilty of, of hammering the newcomer with alcohol is not your problem. And the newcomer is going, it damn sure is my problem. Well, I think the first thing that we need to realize uh, when we come into A is that, yes, we do have an alcohol problem. And what is my alcohol problem? When I put a little bit of it in my system, I lose control and I drink more than I need to. You know, what I need to do is drink two or three or four drinks, loosen up, lose the end. That's how my mom taught me to drink. She taught me when I was in high school. She said, Chad, take a couple drinks, get a couple drinks in you when you fit. Because we partied at my house, you know. She's like, look, she's the Al-Anon of the group, if you can't tell. She's like, just, just loosen up a little bit when you start having fun and things. Then, then drink something else that's not alcoholic. And if you start to lose your buzz, well, then have another drink, you know. And that's a great plan, but I can't pull it off. Because once I start to drink, I lose control and I way overshoot the mark. And then I suffer a lot of consequences and I do things that I regret doing and I hurt people and I hurt myself. And, it, you know, it, and it just it's and I lose a lot of things. Anything that stands in the way is going to get shoved out of the way. I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I. Uh, at this time in my sobriety, I was I was married. I had a young daughter about a year old at. at at home. And I, I didn't really get along with my wife anymore. Um, because when she got pregnant, uh, we both committed to, to getting sober and, and stopping all the partying and straightening up and being good parents. And we both meant it, you know, and, uh, she pulled it off and I did, you know, I'm the alcohol. Yes. I'm going to straighten up and take care of my kid. I can't wait to be a father and all, you know, and then I, I, I blew it, you know, I just, I couldn't, I, 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 I couldn't stop drinking. I mean, I thought that I was just, you know, messing up and, and I was putting it off. But, but what I didn't know at the time is I couldn't stop. So what happened? She did. She straightened up and we fought a lot, you know, and we should have. I wasn't I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. But on this night, the night that I'm describing, we were getting along great. We're watching a movie. I had just come off a construction job. I'd been out of town for a while. I come in, we're watching a movie. We're getting along really well. My daughter's playing in the floor and she says to me, Hey, it's getting late. I'm going to put Abby to bed. Why don't you go get us something to eat? And then when you get back, we'll finish the movie. I'm like great idea. So I leave it as I'm, as I'm leaning out the door, I lean back in and I say, I love you. I'll be back in 20 minutes. And you, you could have hooked a lie detector up on me and said, okay, Chad, seriously, you swear that you're going to be back in, I just had a bug on my foot. You swear you're going to be back in 20 minutes. I would have said, yes, absolutely. I, I swear. And I would have passed the test with flying colors. I mean, when I said I'm going to be back in 20 minutes, that was the plan. 
So I'm leaving. I'm going to get tacos. You know, that's what we do. We eat tacos in Texas. Uh, so I'm going to get tacos. And uh, on the way there, I start thinking, man, I've been on this job. I'm doing good. I got a pocket full of money. Tomorrow, when my wife goes to take her classes at the community college, I'll get my, I'll spend quality time with my daughter and I'll get her ready in the morning. Then I'll take her to daycare and I'll go pick up my buddy, Michael. You know, we'll get a six pack. We'll go, you know, I got a four wheel drive truck. We'll go play in the, the mud, shoot some guns and drink some beer and have a good time. Right. Okay. So I go get the tacos. Then on the way back, I think, you know, I'm going to swing by Michael's house and let him know that I'll be there in the morning to pick him up. Okay. So I stop by his house and I go knock on the door and he answers the door and there's a party already going on. He's like, Hey man, come in. Like, well, I'll come in for a second, but I got to get, I got tacos, you know, I got to get, I got to get home. And, uh, and I come in for a second. He's like, you know, have a drink. And I'm like, no. And then next thing you know, I have a couple drinks and next thing you know, it's midnight. And the first thought that hits me is, Oh no, it's midnight. I'm in big trouble. Well, I can't go home now. Because if I go home now, I'm going to be in really big trouble. So then next thing you know, it's daylight. And I'm telling Michael, bro, we got to get out of here. She's going to come find me. And what happens is my 20-minute trip to get tacos takes like two weeks. And it's not like two weeks later, I come home. It's like two weeks later, I get caught sneaking my golf clubs out of the garage at four o'clock in the morning, you know? And that's how I show up once I take off to, uh, to uh, start drinking. That's how I show up as a father and a husband. But the interesting thing about that is, is um, that thought that came to mind. It's midnight. I can't go home now because if I go home now, I'll be in big trouble. What I understand today is I've got, as an alcoholic, once I start to drink, the drinking becomes more important than anything else. Anything that stands in the way of my continuing to drink has got to go. And what was standing in the way of my continuing to drink that night was going home. Because if I went home, I was going to have to finish watching the stupid movie and go to bed. And that's not going to happen. Once I start drinking, there's something back here that where this craving develops that says, look, bro, I don't care what you got to tell yourself. I don't care what you got to do. We're not stopping. So I have this brilliant statement come to mind that says, I can't go home now because if I go home now, I'll be in big trouble. And, you know, had I gone home then, I'd have been in trouble, but we could have been okay. But showing up, getting caught, sneaking my golf clubs out of the garage two weeks later, we're not okay, you know. But that's how it works in, in this mind and in this body. So if, if the problem is that every time I drink, I lose control and I suffer a lot of consequences and I put the people I love through hell and things go really bad and I lose things, well, there's a real simple solution to that. Dr. Silkworth gives us the answer before we even get to page one. He says, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Now, if you're alcoholic and you hear the word abstinence, it might give you chills. You know, ooh. I know when I was in that little treatment center and they said something about total abstinence, I was like, I'm not 100% sure what that means, but I don't like the sound of it. You know, like you can't take nothing. 
Nothing. So, uh, so the answer to the drinking problem is quit drinking. And there are not only are, are most of the people in the world, especially the ones that talk to me a lot about my drinking, that think that if I would just quit drinking, everything would be fine. Obviously, what I have is a drinking problem. That's a big misunderstanding. And there are also a lot of people in AA who have that misunderstanding. They're the ones telling you if you put the plug in, just put the plug in the jug, or, or if you won't take the first drink, you won't get drunk, or, or just don't drink no matter what. And, and those are all well-meaning people, and that's all great advice unless you're alcoholic. Because if you're alcoholic, the drinking problem is just the beginning. See, as an alcoholic, I have a much bigger problem. That bigger problem is a mental problem. And that mental problem is insanity. When it comes to that first drink, I am strangely insane. No matter how bad it got last time, no matter how much I have to lose, no matter how many reasons, good reasons that I have to not drink, I can't not drink. I pick up the first drink, stone cold sober, lose control and take another run at it. And I do it over and over and over. Two years before I got sober, I had a bad wreck. I was under the influence. I ran my truck off the left side of the road just after daylight and hit a tree at about 70 miles an hour and broke a lot of stuff. My shoulder, my pelvis, my hip, my jaw, busted my head up. I was in pretty bad shape. It took them an hour and a half to get me out of the truck. It's kind of funny. I, I, I don't remember any of it. I, I blocked it all out, I guess, because I talked to one of the people that rescued me about a year later. And, um, and, and I asked him, I said, was I unconscious through all that? And he said, oh, no, no, no. You were fully conscious. You were, full, you were wide awake, fully alert, and giving us real clear instructions on how to get you out. I was like, oh, I know he's not lying because that's just like something I would do. You can just imagine as much as I talk, me sitting in the twisted up in the driver's seat of that truck, locked in, telling those guys how to get me out of the truck. But they got me out of the truck. It sent me, they went to the emergency room. They flew me to, to another emergency room. I was in the hospital for a month. I had some surgeries. I got out of the hospital. I'm on a walker. My jaws are wired shut. I can't raise this arm past here. I'm talking like this because, you know, and I was in bad shape. And, and the cool thing about it is my whole family showed up, my big, loving, dysfunctional family that I had pushed away, pushed out of my lives, avoided because of my drinking, because of my alcoholism. They showed up, you know, and it's, I mean, at one time, it's like my dad's over here and my mom's over here, who's his ex-wife. And then my ex-stepmom, who's his second ex-wife, is over here. And my current stepmom is, I mean, my big crazy fan. They showed up and they loved me, you know. And everybody knew why I had the wreck. It, was, it wasn't like there was anything hidden. I'm not the guy who showed up in AA and people were surprised, you know. It was pretty common knowledge that I had burned it down through my drinking. They all showed up, though, and, and I told them, and I meant it. I'm done drinking. I obviously have no control over this. I'm running my life. I'm running your lives. And I'm done. My dad cried. I'd never seen that before. It was really disturbing. And guys, I meant it. Man, I was not lying. 
I meant it. I am done. I commit to come quitting drinking. I'm going back to school. I'm going to be a good dad, a, a, a good husband, a good son. I'm going to fulfill my potential. Two days. Two days is how long I last when I swear off. Two days later, I was on a walker with my jaws wired shut, staying out all night drinking and partying. That's insanity. Nobody forced that drink down me. Things weren't so bad that I had to drink. That's just what I do because I'm alcoholic. I pick up the first drink and then I lose control. And that's the, um, that's the hopelessness of this thing. Another thing that makes me alcoholic is this obsession, this idea that I can control this. And I always like to talk about this a little bit when, I, when I'm speaking anywhere, is this, uh, this um, obsession. This, there's a misunderstanding, in my opinion, that the obsession that people talk about is that I'm thinking about drinking, that I want to drink, and I'm thinking about it all the time. And I, I think that can be dangerous sometimes because sometimes people think they get a warning. They think they get a warning. They think before I relapse, before I go back out, I'm going to have, I'm going to be obsessing about drinking. And that's not really what the obsession is, according to the big book. The obsession is this idea that I can beat this thing, that I can do this on my own, that I'm going to be able to control and maybe enjoy my drinking. That's the obsession that we all share. And that obsession, when I'm out there just running and gunning, it's like a voice. It's like this voice that says, Hey, Chad, let's get wasted. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. But then bad things happen. And I swear off, I make a commitment. I'm not going to drink anymore. So the voice comes back and it says, hey, Chad, let's get wasted. I'm like, no, no, I'm not doing it. I don't do that anymore, man. It's bad. This can happen. This can, no, I'm not doing it. So the voice has to get a little creative. So the voice says, you know, man, we don't have to get wasted. Let's just drink a couple beers, take the edge off. Like, okay, I can do that. So I, you guys know what happens, right? Well, then I end up in a treatment center or NAA or going to AA meetings or whatever it may be. And that voice comes back and it says, let's get wasted. No, I'm not doing that. Let's just have a couple of beers, man. Don't overreact. No, not doing that either. I have an allergy. One is too many. A thousand's never enough, you know? So, so then the voice has to get a little more creative. Now, I've got a little brother, three years younger than me. When we were kids, I could get him to do anything I wanted him to do. I mean, all I had to do was be really persistent. Well, actually, there was another trick to it. If we were around the family and I said, hey, Clint, do this or do that, and the family would say, Clint, just ignore your brother. You don't have to do what he says. So what I would have to do is I would have to get Clint by himself. And when I could get him by himself and then I could be really persistent, I could get him to do anything I wanted him to do. I was really not a very good big brother. Well, that's kind of how this voice is. See, this voice, this obsession, when I'm in AA, this voice has to get really creative. Here's the kind of thing it says. It says things like, hey, Chad, you don't need to make all those amends. That's just big enough the past. Or it says, hey, Chad, you don't need to talk to your sponsor about that. You can handle this on your own. 
or it says, hey, Chad, you don't have to go sponsor all those people. That's for the people who are really like really into AA. Or, hey, Chad, you don't have to go to your home group this week. The playoffs are on or whatever, right? Or it'll say those people in AA are really annoying anyway. I mean, I mean, I, I'm, it's never happened to me, but maybe that's happened to some of you. So, so what that voice, that obsession is trying to do, it's trying to separate me from you. It's trying to separate me from the program. It's trying to separate me from God. And then once it gets me alone, all it has to do is be really persistent. And then next thing you know, I got a drink in me. And I don't know how it happened. There's so many people. I talk to people who have relapsed. My sponsor, I first heard him talking about this. And I kind of follow what he does. You know, I ask people that have gone back out. Like on the day you drank, did you have any idea you were going to drink that day? And most of the time they say, no, I didn't see it coming. Yet we think we're going to get a warning. The obsession will come back. It's not the way it works. There's only one pe reason people relapse in AA. It's because they stop doing the work. You know, it's that simple. I mean, maybe I haven't seen every case, but I've seen a lot. You know, and that's my experience. That's what I've seen. So the difference in a drunk and an alcoholic is this idea of hopelessness. See, when I came in, I knew I was a drunk. I knew I had a problem. But the difference in a drunk and an alcoholic is a drunk has a problem. An alcoholic doesn't have an answer. That's the big difference. If I am very clear that I don't have an answer to alcoholism, well, then I don't have much of a choice except to work this program and to keep working this program. That's really the only choice that I have if I'm clear on this. I have friends in AA who have drifted away from doing this work. And I've given this a lot of thought. And I've talked to these guys and you see them go back out or, or they get into what we call untreated alcoholism and they struggle and, and then maybe come back in and get serious or, or relapse, you know, and some of them, it takes them a long time and some not very long at all. But what I think today is that there's really only two reasons that people stop doing this work. Reason number one is they don't really have a clear understanding of what alcoholism is. Like they really don't get the hopelessness. They really don't get it that the alcoholic has no choice over whether or not he drinks. That that's what I'm admitting in step one, is that I really have no choice over whether or not I pick up the first drink. And it can be confusing because sometimes I can say no, I just can't every time. And if you drink like I drink, you got to every time, right? The second reason I think that people drift and stop doing this work is because deep down they don't really believe they have alcoholism or they've lost touch. One of my heroes, Mark Houston, used to talk a lot about, about um, my current experience with step one. 
I haven't had a drink in 18 years. And I know there are probably some people in this meeting that have that are been separated from alcohol for much longer than I am. So what's my current experience with step one, 18 years removed from my first drink? Well, it's this. I do a review at night, pray and meditate in the morning, work with others, stay current on inventory and amends, go to meetings. I, I do this stuff because I know that as an alcoholic, I am not normal. That I don't get to decide whether or not I drink. That the only thing, the only choice that I have if I want to stay sober is to stay spiritually fit by continuing to do this work. That's it. You know, that's all I can do. And that's why I continue to do it. And, you know, I hope that this lasts a long time. But if, you know, it, you know whatever, I'm, I'm on a path and I trust God with it. Well, I went on after that wreck for a couple more years. Actually, it's funny. The, my last drink was exactly two years after that wreck. Um, it's been it's been a little over 20 years since I had the wreck, and I've been sober a little over 18. And 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 after that wreck, I ended up homeless. She left, you know, took my daughter um, after I went, you know, kept drinking after that wreck. And, and it was about time. And I, I really, the consequences got really bad. And I was, you know, stealing and and i mean i was doing a lot of really bad things and 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 every day pretty much every day i said i'm not gonna drink today and i drank today and it just went on and on and on um my mom as a last ditch effort organized an intervention on my brother and they got together and they, they did the letters and all that stuff. And they'd hired the interventionist and they got the bed in the treatment center and he showed up and he said, hell no, and walked out. So then they were like, well, we've already got the bed in the treatment center. Why don't we try chat? I mean, we might as well give it a shot, but they didn't think it'd work with me because I was too far gone. You know, nobody even really knew where I was, but my mom's good Al-Anon, you know, and she got busy, man. And she found me. And she got this thing. She tricked me into thinking that I was going to go in, go meet her somewhere and pick up a paycheck, which was ridiculous because I hadn't had a job in like a long time. I don't know where I thought this check was coming from, but I mean, if I really needed some money, so I was going to risk it, you know, so I showed up and they're sitting around in a circle in the chairs and family and friends of family. And, and, uh, my first thought, you know, it, if I ever wonder if I'm self-centered, I, I can remember this. My first thought, any of you guys ever been a part of an intervention, you know, it's really difficult. You know, you're scared. You love this person. You don't want to run them off. You don't want to make them mad, but you want to be tough and you want to get them. And people put a lot of effort into an intervention and it's very emotional. And you really go through the ringer when you do these things. And my first thought when I walked in that room was, how could they do this to me? But I stayed. And I sit down and I listen to their letters and I agreed to go to this uh, little 30 day treatment center. We got some great treatment centers in Austin. They do great clinical work. And then they also really immerse their clients in the 12 steps and the big book. And they get them out of treatment, ready to go make their amends and work with others. It's really cool. That's not like the treatment center I went to the, 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 the treatment center that I went to, I'll just give you a quick idea of what it was like. Um, we, we, we wrote, I wrote my biggest resentment on a balloon 
and let it go. And it, it was a really cool exercise, but it didn't work. I still had to write the inventory later and make the amends, you know, but I mean, I wish it worked that way. Wouldn't it be cool if you came to the fourth step and they're like, okay, write your resentments on balloons, let them go. And now let's just, you know, go to meetings and love on each other. I mean, that, that would be a great program. So I showed up in AA, that, that treatment center introduced me to AA and AA introduced me to alcoholics who were like me. And I fell in love with the people and I knew that they were like me because when they talked about their drinking, they drank the way that I drank. And I could just tell they were my people. But like I said, I wasn't really, I didn't really understand what it meant to be alcoholic. I wasn't really convinced that I had it. I knew I had a drinking problem, but I didn't get this, didn't really get a grip on the hopelessness. And all I was doing was going to meetings. My program was based on meetings. Now I was hardcore into meetings. I put my heart and soul in it. I showed up early. I stayed late. I chaired meetings. I was on all the committees. I uh, gave people rides to and from meetings. I went, I was hanging out with the members of the group, the people that went to the meetings. And uh, after, I don't know, about six months or so of that, I was about done. I had, I had developed many resentments in AA. I mean, I got to tell you, if you're not working a program, AA will drive you to drink, you know? And um, uh, I was, I was just about done. And I met this guy and he 12 stepped me in sobriety after the meeting and helped me to understand what was wrong with me. And he explained to me what I just explained to you. And I was very disturbed. And it hit me that night sitting on the front steps of that meeting house that I was probably not going to stay sober, that I was close to a drink and that I didn't really have a choice over whether or not I drank. And when he described it to me and I laid that up against my experience, I knew what he was telling me was true. And guess what? He did not give me experience, strength, and hope. He gave me a shot of hopelessness. When I 12-step someone, my job is to give them a fatal dose of alcoholism, an understanding of alcoholism that crushes all the hope that they can get the job done on their own. And if they are alcoholic and they're ready to quit, they're done, they'll be able to lay their experience up against that explanation and be very disturbed and realize that that's what they are and that's what happened to me. So I'm sitting there really disturbed, and he says to me, Chad, do you know what you need? Like, uh, no, Dave, what do I need? And he said, you need a spiritual awakening as a result of the 12 steps. And it hit me. I was like, oh, my God, that's it. That's what they've been talking about. And we got into the work, and I had this experience. It was amazing. It was difficult at first because I'm very agnostic. I've always said agnostic. Maybe I'm, I came in more atheist. And it wasn't like I had a problem with Jesus or God or the church. I had a problem with all of it. Meditation, Buddhism, Native American, anything. I didn't like any of it. I thought it was all ridiculous. But I was done. And I work with a lot of guys today who are atheists or agnostic. I tend to, I tend to attract people kind of like me, and I love them. I love the agnostic or atheist alcoholic. Bring it on. I can work with you. You know, I get it. But here's what I like to challenge people with. I have heard, I used to hear a lot about having a step two problem. 
Well, Dr. Bob kind of says this in the last paragraph of his story. I'm not going to read it. You can check it out. But but I, I kind of see it the way that he's talking about. If you've got a problem with God or a step two problem, that's cool. Bring it on. You know, we love you in AA. We'll take you. Whatever conception you have of God, even if you think it's all ridiculous, come on in. But if you've got a step two problem that keeps you from doing the rest of the work, it's not a step two problem. It's a step one problem. Because if I'm clear on step one and I got a problem with God, I don't care. I'll pray anyway. I got a problem with inventory and getting honest. I don't care. I'll write it anyway and tell you what's on. I've uh, got a problem cleaning up the past. None of us want to do that. But if I'm clear on the first step, man, I'll do it. I'll do it. And I start to have this experience, and it's really amazing. I moved to Austin with about five years sober and met Charlie and Katie, primary purpose group, got involved in that. And, uh, and I learned a lot of things that I had been missing. Really got into the big book, um, really getting real clear on what it says. I, I found out that I had grossly underestimated the message in the big book that I thought it was way too simple. My first sponsor took me through the steps in a way that was much more complex, you know, much more intellectual. And, um, and, and I fell in love with the simplicity of the big book. And I found out that in its simplicity, there's much more depth. I found out that, that in the third step, in the first step, my problem is alcoholism. In the second step, the solution is a spiritual awakening. And in the third step, I found out what's blocking me from having a spiritual awakening. And that is the failure of self-will. I've been trying to live on my own power in my own direction, by self-propulsion, my entire life, and I knew no other way. And I didn't come to AA because I was selfish and self-centered. I came because of the drinking. But I found out once I got into this big book and started working with people in this book and, and really understanding this deal, that we're not going to do work around drinking. We're going to do work around the failure of self-will and getting free of self-will because self-will is what's blocking me from the only solution for alcoholism, which is this spiritual experience, this relationship with God. What I do is I live in self-will. I try to arrange everything to suit me. I try to get you to play the role that I've assigned you, and I try to play the role that I've assigned me, and I need to get everything to go my way so that I'll be okay. It's a painful way to live, you know, and I really think that if I can arrange it just right, I'll be happy and satisfied. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I just have it backwards. It's like I'm trying to arrange everything outside of me to fix an internal condition where all along what I've needed to do is focus on improving my internal condition and watching my external circumstances improve. Or a more religious way of saying it is deepening my relationship with God and then letting God handle my life. That's all I needed to do. But like I said, man, it's simple, but I'm complicated. I complicate the hell out of it. I get in my own way. I'm sound asleep. 
I'm an extreme example of self-will run riot, and I don't even know it. As a matter of fact, I think that's you, not me. And that's what's causing all my troubles. Book calls it troubles. The way I'd say it today is stress. I live in a state of constant stress because my attempts to run the show are not working. They're not giving me what I think I need. I'm constantly in fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. It's like an endless cycle, and it just doesn't work out. Is this really that important? Let me quote two things in the book real quick. Bill's story. I love this part of the book. Ebby's been working with Bill in the hospital, helping him do what would become our 12 steps later. And Ebby promises Bill, man, when you do these things, you're going to enter into a new relationship with your creator. You're going to have the elements of a way of living which solve all your problems. I don't know about you, but I didn't just come in with a drinking problem. I came in with a lot of problems. And then I got sober, and I still had a lot of problems, and I kept creating more problems. If you can give me the elements of a way of living which will answer all those problems, bro, I'm in. I am down. Let's do it. A new relationship with my creator? I haven't even had one. Yes, let's do it. But over on the next page, it says this is simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. What's the price that I have to pay? for this new relationship with my creator, for the elements of a way of living, which will solve all my problems. It says it right here. I must, it says, simple but not easy. A price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. So you're telling me if I want a relationship with God, if I want a spiritual awakening, it's, it means destruction of self-centeredness? When did that come into play? You know, over on page 62, it says, above everything, we alcoholics must quit drinking. No, that's not what it said. It says, above everything, we alcoholics must develop a relationship with God. No, that's not what it says either. It says, above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. Here's what I understand today. God consciousness is my natural state. As an expression of my creator, as a child of God, as spirit, eternal, invincible spirit, the essence of who I really am is 100% connected to God. This flow of God consciousness is my birthright as a child of God but it's blocked. It's blocked by this extreme self-centeredness. And if we can get this out of the way, I can get back to my true nature. I can become an open channel. And that's the solution to alcoholism, is to be of service, to carry this message from a state of surrender as an open channel. If God's working through me, you think I'm going to drink? Absolutely not. Not only am I not going to drink, I'm going to be free. I'm going to experience joy. I'm going to live in the present moment. 
happy, joyous, and free. That's the result of awakening spiritually and being of service. And that's what we do in this program. So what do I do today? I've got a home group. I'm involved in that home. And by the way, I'm going to tell you what I do. And I am not claiming to work a perfect program. I fall short. I can make, I can tell you right now some things I need to be doing better. My sponsor is on here somewhere and I'm sure he can tell you a couple things I need to improve on too. But I can tell you in general, for the most part, here's what I do today. I have a home group that I'm involved in. I go to AA meetings. I'm involved in the fellowship and I stay in touch with people. We talk about recovery. and We walk each other through this. That's what I do to be a member of this fellowship. What else do I do? I practice a program of recovery. I write inventory. Stay current on that. I didn't do a four-step 18 years ago and been living on that since then. I continue to write inventory. I read it. I uh, take it to God. I stay current on amends. If I harm someone and I become aware of it, I make the amends. I make the approach. I practice the 10th step. I watch my thinking. I really try to get good at this really observe my thought processes, get to know me. There's a saying somewhere that says, you want to know God better, get to know yourself better. You know, and I really believe that's true. That's been true in my experience. I watch myself. I watch for these resentments to crop up and this fear and this self-centeredness and this dishonesty and learn where it's coming from and talk to people about it and really gain awareness on it. I clean things up as I go. I do a review on paper. I write this stuff down. Where am I falling short? What's continuing to block me? What's been on me? What's keeping me from experiencing the freedom God has to offer? How am I showing up in other people's lives? What's the effect I have on people? I follow these instructions in the book. I pray and meditate on a regular basis and really do what I can to continue to grow spiritually. And now, the reason for all this is so that I can be of service. Okay, now, I want to tell you that I keep that at the forefront of my mind at all times. I don't. You know, sometimes I lose sight of that. Sometimes I start to think that the purpose of spiritual growth is so that I won't experience any more pain. And then I'll be happy and free. But the truth is, I need to keep my focus on staying free so that I can be of service. And if I live that way, a really cool thing happens. I get to help make the world a better place. And the byproduct of that is I get personal freedom. I get peace of mind. I get a sense of purpose. I get so many of these cool things through this process of spiritual growth. And I'm so grateful. Um, I um, am a big fan of adventure. I love rock climbing. I love paddle boarding. I love hiking. I love climbing mountains, jumping off cliffs, all that fun stuff. I love doing all that. And what I have found is that this process of spiritual growth has been the biggest adventure of all 
and I'm so glad I walked into it. Thanks for having me tonight, guys.